It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm William Hosea. Welcome once again to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning program celebrating over 12 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. You will also hear our perspective on what's relevant in the African American world of news and local events of interest all in the next hour on Bring It On. But first up, recent Grassroots mobilization against police killings of African Americans has thrust a long-standing pattern of racial violence into the consciousness of the world. There is nothing new about state violence against African Americans, from slave patrols, fugitive slave laws, and the Klan-slash-state violence of Jim Crow, right up to today's racial profiling, stop-and-frisk, mass incarceration, and shoot-first practices. The segregation and racial oppression of the U.S. has always been maintained by violence. So giving recognition to individual experiences and truths is the beginning of justice and the beginning of healing and resolution. Each is a necessary step that we are to move our society through and then pass the pain associated with the legacies of racism in the U.S. Dr. David Raglan heads up the Truth Telling Project, and he joins us tonight. Dr. Raglan, uh, welcome to Bring It On. Are you there? Good. Hi, I'm here. How are you? Okay, awesome. We've been uh, waiting for this interview for, what, almost two months now, huh? <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, so why don't you go ahead and uh, start from the beginning and tell us about uh, the Truth Telling Project. Um, so, sure. On um, August the 9th, um, I found myself in Ferguson uh, because August 9th is also the date of my mother's and my nephew's birthday. And I was um, about to begin the semester, and I was teaching at the time at uh, Bucknell University. And some friends invited me out to come to the protest. And after about two weeks, of protesting because um, Jimmy Powell was killed in front of my parents' house. Um, and that's probably about three miles away from Ferguson. And when he was killed, um, a colleague called and asked me if, you know, what kind of work I was doing personally, being a, a scholar and um, uh, a teacher in conflict resolution and peace and conflict studies. And um, out of that conversation, more conversations began um, among uh, academics and activists. And um, so out of that, um, and my research being focused on restorative justice, uh, we came up with the idea of the Truth Telling Project, in part because um, we needed uh, a place for substantive dialogue after and even during um, the protests. So that could be a place for conversation and a place for people to offer perspectives that weren't necessarily heard out of the, the haze of protests and the haze of uh, police and responses to police violence. 
Um, and so uh, we began that uh, project um, in part looking at could truth and could those conversations be a educational and a political intervention? Um, and then, uh, given the popularity and the rising uh, importance of um, the vehicle of truth and reconciliation. And so uh, folks in Ferguson and in St. Louis uh, and the scholars and um, practitioners and activists who came thought that um, truth and reconciliation was important, but reconciliation suggested that there was a formal end to conflict. And since we continuously see people killed by police, um, in addition to the deeper structural issues that allow and make um, murders of people possible uh, by police, um, the thought was that what was needed more than anything was truth and the centering of voices that don't normally get heard or that are not believed to be true. And so that's the, so we started with, um, after that first gathering um, in March of 2015, we began holding hearings and so forth after that. Okay, so let, let me uh, interrupt you for a second. Um, this was all after the uh, Mike Brown incident, and then you said there was another person killed outside of your parents' home. His name is Kajimi Powell. Kajimi Powell. And Jimmy did, Powell. did that killing make the news? Did it receive headlines? It did make some news. It, it did make national news. And if you spell his name out, it's K-H-E-J-E-M-E. And, you know, even the, the person who called the police, I talked to that person, and they were telling me they called the police because this kid had a knife. We know this kid. Oh, yeah, I remember has that. Has mental illness, or we believe he has mental illness, and the Mike Brown murder um, set him off. And within six seconds of coming out of the car, police were shooting. Yeah, I, I saw now, the video of him yeah. walking, uh, kind of pacing back and forth in front mm -hmm. of a store, and then, uh, yeah, I saw the 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 video of the police driving up, and like you said, with, within just a matter of seconds, he, he was dead. Mm-hmm. So is your focus strictly on police violence? Well, I mean, I think our focus is, like, what causes things like police violence to happen, and, and looking at the root causes. And one of the things we believe is that the most egregious crime that incense uh, our communities um, give us a lot of truth about what's happening beneath that. So you have people who are testifying about um, structural poverty and the humiliation or the belief that police, um, you know, see people as animals or or believe that certain communities can be treated a certain way. It's deeper than just that interaction between police. I mean, it, it has something to do with the sensibility of all Americans. If, if we can allow communities to be policed like that, whether, and we know that wealthy communities and middle-class communities that aren't policed like that, 
we we have to look at that. And we know, like, you know, those middle class and wealthy communities, people are are doing drugs and doing all kinds of stuff um, that poor communities do. Right. You know, the difference is, is that, you know, when people are impoverished, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of issues, lack of opportunities that, you know, prevent um, them from getting educations or having meaningful things to put their time into. Um, your website mentions something about community-centered truth-telling processes. And I'm kind of curious. Uh, I, when I read it, I, I didn't exactly understand what it meant. Right, right. What what that means is um, part of that comes from um, the the literature and the experiences and practice of truth and reconciliation as a process to bring parties together um, after long, uh, egregious violence committed on both sides. And often that process is a state-centered process, meaning that the, the state has an interest. So, for instance, in South Africa, there's a truth and reconciliation process. And that was in part, or largely in part, to keep South Africa together. Because Mandela's and Mandela and Bishop Tutu and other power holders, elite white power holders from the white minority, knew that there would be essentially a civil war if there wasn't some kind of formal process to help people get beyond it. But then also among that is interest in making sure that business continues. Uh, making sure that uh, resources continue to flow, uh, making sure that the the power is consolidated within the state apparatus. And so folks in Ferguson and protesters from around the country had come to the conclusion that the state does not have the interest of the people, and particularly poor folk. And so we wanted to do a process that focused on people from communities that don't get heard, not police whose story we're more likely to believe than the folk telling you about what just happened to them. So were you able to apply this community-centered truth-telling process in Ferguson? And if so, what did you take away from that? uh, Actually, the truth-telling initiative for Ferguson and beyond. Right. So it's an ongoing... um, project, and we've had multiple hearings in Ferguson, and, um, you you know, Michael Brown Sr. testified there, and his sisters testified there, and, um, you know, the uh, the folk of the the parents of um, Carlos Ball, who was murdered by St. Louis police, and even people like um, Tamir Rice's mother and brother, and... um, Sandra Bland's sister came and testified there. Those are just some of the folks who came. Um, But one of the things that is done was that it is, in part, like there's an entire new class of people who are interested in coming out and being engaged. Because when people get to tell their truth, in part, that's that's, um, part of building... Uh, efficacy and empowerment for people to to tell their own story and to have it valued because there are many people who don't get to speak out 
who don't feel like they can speak out, who don't feel like they're part of the political process. And I think in part it's been symbolic as a symbolic critique of the state and the, 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 the government not having people's interests at heart and being concerned with corporations and the very elite. And then in part it, is, it has been uh, real for a lot of people. Um, and I'll, I'll point to one organization that uh, came out of the truth-telling is a conscious conversation. And these folks um, uh, were interested in uh, working on uh, taking back their community and, and actually doing things. So people have created co-op, cooperative classes. How do we function as a community? Uh, because I think, like, the beginning is telling your story, telling your truth. That's political efficacy, feeling like you have a voice. And then the next part is actually doing things in your community. Um, and, you know, one group actually runs and, um, every Sunday through uh, the, the uh, most uh, blighted um, corridor in St. Louis. And uh, they began uh, working on cleaning up communities and... Um, even in buying property so that people can be housed and so that that blight is cleaned up. Um, and so, I mean, so I think tangibly and both symbolically things have been happening. And finally, I would say that um, our last hearing was in August um, at the second anniversary of the murder of Michael Brown at Jr. And uh, we partnered with StoryCorps um, and all of the people who testified in those hearings, their stories are now cataloged in the Library of Congress. Mm -hmm. So for people's stories to actually be a part of the public record is extremely important. And I don't think we even understand how valuable that is. So, Dr. Ragland, how has the community changed in Ferguson uh, since the Mike Brown murder and, and uh, as a result of your efforts and the efforts of, of others like you? Well, <clears throat> I think, I think that uh, people have began to be, to act, um, to act and advocate for themselves. Um, and for instance, I'll say tangibly, there have been two protesters elected to public office um, the co-director of the Truth Telling Project, uh, Pastor Cory Bush, ran for U.S. Senate um, and lost in the Democratic primary, but came in second place. And in just six months, bringing out over 40,000 people uh, to vote for her, people who wouldn't have normally voted. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think the the interest in people taking control of their politics has changed tremendous, tremendously in the view of people taking control of their economics um, has changed. So um, I think those are very tangible things. People, people have, are, have become woke. And, and I also saw the video on, on your website of uh, one young lady. I, I'm, I'm thinking she produced the video, but she was inspired to activism as a result mm -hmm. of uh, everything going on in Ferguson. And in that video, we so we worked and partnered with a group called the Babel Project, mm -hmm. um, where Palika, uh, who works with us, went to Ferguson and, and trained uh, girls on how to use video equipment and how to tell a story. 
And so they produced two small short films um, called Ferguson uh, As Told By Us and then called uh, You Speak Truth. And um, those those girls are extremely engaged. They understand that if if their life is valuable, they view their life as valuable, they actually have to, to act um, in the community on their behalf as well. I want to ask you uh, about something, something else that I saw on your website. I want to read this first. Um, it says, we don't push forgiveness. While forgiveness is important and a part of reconciliation, it takes time. Structural change must, must happen first. When America listens and takes positive steps, then and only then can we begin to discuss what reconciliation looks like. So based, based on that, do you feel that there is an unreasonable burden on African-Americans to forgive the injustices that we have suffered? Yeah. I, I mean, I think, it's, I think number one, I start with that is racist to expect that from black people. It's to expect to, to, it's to essentially say that we are the same. So God bless their hearts, that family in South Carolina um, who, who were murdered while praying by Dylan Ruth, right. and they came out and forgave. I applaud them. I think that is fine. But the expectation that came from the media for other black people to do that suggests that we are sane and at the same place. And, and in addition, like, how, how, do you forgive if you're in a, a monogamous relationship and your partner continuously cheats and they say, oh, I'm sorry, but they keep doing it. You, do you forgive them, or do you want changes first? And I think we are, America is a society where we want to see it first. Show me. And Missouri is a show-me state. So for us, we need to see change. We need to see that people want the structures of their society to reflect equality and the things that we hold to be true in this society. And at this point, we're nowhere near that. Now, there really was not a whole lot of talk about forgiveness uh, surrounding the other incidents of uh, black men being killed uh, mm -hmm. before the Dylan Roof uh, murders. Is that because this took place in a, it happened in a place of worship, so you expect those people to take that position? Well, I mean, you know, in in the the circles that talk about reconciliation um, in restorative justice circles and and peace and conflict and in a lot of, lot of religious communities there was there was after Michael Brown was killed after Kajimi Powell was killed you know after Sandra Bland people were saying you know we you should forgive and move on like that was a strong a strong sentiment in that direction. Um, there was even lots of writing about it as well. Um, and, and when people brought it up, you know, like, for instance, that guy who goes out there and hugs police, you know, that, that is an acquiescence to some other wish coming outside of our community. Our community wants things to be different. Like, you, you can't just keep forgiving. Otherwise, it's meaningless. Otherwise, people think, well, I can just do whatever I want and continue my practices and I'll be forgiven. Yeah. You know, it's, the, it's, the, it's like, you know, you, you vote for a politician 
They tell you they're going to do something. They continuously don't do it. And you continue to vote for them because they know all they have to do is make up a lie. And then they then you'll reelect them. So even though um, you do focus on police violence, you do actually try and bring police into the conversation or make them a part of the solution. How do you approach them and how do, how do you convince them to be a part of this whole effort? Well, one of the things that we we are we are closely connected with um, some police and and actually people who have uh, been police. And you know, one of the ways that we they're part of the conversation is we're supporting them in their reform efforts as well. Um, Pastor Cori Bush, one of her platforms was actually um, working on um, uh, a fix to deal with um, police violence. And she suggested that police should actually uh, carry insurance policies in the same way that somebody who's bonded carrying valuable property should also uh, have insurance. So I'm wondering, does, uh, you said the pastor ran for, for the U.S. Senate? Yes, yes. And she was defeated in the primary. So does she intend to uh, run again, or maybe for a different office? Well, she's just been uh, nominated the vice chair of the Missouri Democratic Progressive Caucus and the Missouri Democratic Party, and she's been asked to run for office um, again for U.S. Senate. Um, as a matter of fact, she was just nominated uh, by the New Democrats of Missouri, and she's going to have a show on later tonight uh, with one of the police officers um, who is uh, about to whistleblow, and that's going to happen wow. in about two hours. Um, and if, if you want to see that, all you have to do is just Google Pastor Corey Bush Ferguson, and you'll see loads of stuff come up. Is that Corey, C-O-W, I mean, C-O-R-E-Y? C-O-R-I, and then Bush, B-U-S-H. C-O-R-I. Okay. Um, also, have you taken your initiative on the road? And I think I read that on your website. If so, what other places have you, uh, what other locations have you been active? So I've been active in Southern California. Um, we uh, recently um, did some workshops there. Um, and uh, also in New York, we've had Night of a Thousand Conversations there, and, and actually in over 20 cities around the country, on the night that we launched our Truth Initiative, communities held separate conversations where they were responding to the testimony, and we produced a, a FAQ and a facilitator's guide so that people can um, guide conversations. Okay. I was also uh, reading in your Declaration of Intent uh, where you say national and international communities should be given an opportunity to hear personal accounts directly from those involved. Right. And so have you developed a means to communicate your message internationally? How, how exactly do you make that happen? Well, actually, at the last hearing, um, a South American film crew came up and they um, interviewed us for a documentary about uh, truth and reconciliation processes 
uh, around the world. Um, in addition, Bishop Tutu, um, when we first announced the project, he sent us a, um, a letter of support, and, and then he sent us another letter of report, I mean, of support um, recently. So um, globally, uh, people are thinking about um, what truth and reconciliation means um, for the U.S., you know, we've never had any kind of process. You know, there was not a formal process after slavery. Um, there was not a formal process um, after um, segregation and Jim Crow formally ended. Um, you know, and, and recently in 2008 and 2009, Congress officially apologized and said that with all of its efforts, it would work uh, to resolve uh, conflict extending from the violence that it caused, and that has never been followed up on. And so America needs a moral accounting, and that's what truth-telling is. It is it is a moral inventory. Dr. Monty Scott in her book, Can Truth and Reconciliation Heal a Nation, argues that, um, that truth-telling is a first step and is a moral accounting of what we've done. And, where we've been and what we owe. And if if I were to ask you, what kind of progress has the Truth Telling Initiative uh, been able to accomplish so far? How how would you answer that? You know, I would say that you know, in a in a world uh, and a society that believes in the kind of post truth, we are still holding the light that when we experience something personally and the numbers and, and not all of media is lying and, and uh, that truth telling is a radical act, but it's a necessary act. And, and, you know, symbolically we've put that in, into the conversation. Uh, we've been a part of, um, nationally, um, making it known the need for some kind of process to interrupt this disastrous course that we're on. You know, there were, uh, of course, several other um, killings or murders of uh, unarmed black men since Ferguson, mm -hmm. uh, like Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, Walter Scott. So mm -hmm. did you um, take a position or, or did you, uh, were you, did you implement any initiatives based on those incidents or do you kind of like roll them all into one? Well, well, you know, it's not that like we've number one. So I was in Minneapolis after Fernando Castro was murdered and, uh, we actually were part of helping to support the funeral uh, for Philando Castro, which happened in St. Louis, because many people don't know he is from St. Louis. Um, but we think that communities ought to do what they need to do for their own communities. And so what we try to do is be there for support. And so, um, and we also try to um, 
uh, share their stories and make sure that their lives and their names don't die, like just some hashtag that um, is here today and gone tomorrow. And we're concerned um, because we believe that these things have to be documented in a way so that when America finally comes to its senses, we can have a real accounting. Okay, so Dr. Raglan, we got about uh, two minutes left. What is uh, next uh, on the horizon for your organization, for the Truth Telling Project? Well, thank you for that question because um, um, I was hoping I would get to say this. Um, we have taken the testimony that we've had so far, and we are in the process of launching an online learning platform called It's Time to Listen. And what that does is you click onto this website and it stops you and it prompts you to listen. And then after that, you get to take a look at the testimony of uh, family members of people who have been murdered or, or people who had experienced police violence directly. And from there, it connects you with the themes and issues such as militarization of police or structural poverty that comes out of people's testimony. And from there, it connects you with learning lesson plans and um, different ways to learn about these issues, and then connects you with organizations that, are, that we know directly that are doing this kind of work. And we are launching this platform the first week of April, first at Georgetown and then at University of South Carolina. Okay, and in the last few seconds, of Dr. Raglan, anything else you want to throw in there about the Truth Telling Project? Um, visit us, uh, you know, www.truthtelling.org, or follow us on Twitter at TruthTellersUSA. And thank you for having us. And thank you, Dr. Raglan. Uh, we maybe we can get you to come back on sometime. In the meantime, we wish you all the luck uh, uh, and the best in your work. That sounds great. Okay, well, have a good evening. Our thanks to Dr. David Ragland for acquainting us with the Truth Telling Project. The Truth Telling Project implements and sustains grassroots community-centered truth-telling processes to share local voices, to educate America, and to support reconciliation for the purposes of eliminating structural violence and systemic racism against black people in the United States. To learn more, go to thetruthtellingproject.org. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, we would like to hear it. Send your emails directly to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. That email address, once again, bringiton at wfhb.org. Support for WFHB comes from listeners like you and Cutter's Soccer Club. Registration for community soccer, the Cutter's Soccer Club recreational program is now open. Community soccer is for children ages 4 to 18. More information is available at cutterssoccer.com.
can't buy a job. Man that still suit her, he's buying as he catches the poor old lady's eyes. Just for fun, he says, get a job. That's just the way it is. Some things will never change. That's just the way it is. Ah, but don't you believe them? Said, hey, little boy, you can't go where the others go. You don't look like they do. Said, hey, old man, how can you stand to think that way? Did you really think about it? Before you make the rules, it's said That's just the way it is. Some things will never change. That's just the way it is. How, oh, but don't you believe that? legendary Bruce Hornsby. The Way It Is was Bruce Hornsby and the Range's debut album, released in 1986. Led by its hit title track, the album went on to achieve multi-platinum status and helped the group to win a Grammy Award for Best New Artist. This is bringing on the People's Forum for Black Culture in South Central Indiana and beyond. Are you a tweeter? 
You're invited to follow the WFHB News Twitter account, and this is a great way to get breaking news and updates on what's going on behind the scenes and on the air with WFHB News. Go to twitter.com and search for WFHB News, or you can always visit WFHB's news website at wfhb.org slash news. Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org. It's time to now give you the latest perspectives on the people, news, and issues of affecting the black community. For bringing on, I'm Clarence Boone. I'm William Hosea. And uh, we have a report, a report on the Flint water crisis connected to systemic racism. Monique Judge from The Root shares her views on the Flint water contamination issue. Finally, some truth out of Flint, Michigan. The Michigan Civil Rights Commission released a report on Friday which said, in part, systemic racism going back decades is at the core of the problems that caused the lead contaminated water crisis in the majority black city of Flint. While the 130-page report says that the commission did not unearth any civil rights violations and that nobody intended to poison Flint, the testimony of more than 100 residents, experts, and government and community leaders led by the commission to the conclusion excuse me, led the commission to the conclusion that decisions would have been different had they concerned the state's wealthier, predominantly white communities, Time Magazine reports. We are not suggesting that those making decisions related to this crisis were racist, but the disparate response is a result of systemic racism that was built into the foundation and growth of Flint, its industry and suburban area, the report says, would the Flint water crisis have been allowed to happen in Birmingham, Ann Arbor, or East Grand Rapids? We believe the answer is no, and that the vestiges of segregation and discrimination found in Flint made it a unique target. The lack of political clout left the residents with nowhere to turn, nowhere to have their voices heard. While under state control, the decision was made in 2014 to switch the city's water supply from Detroit to the Flint River. The water from the river was used for 18 months without treating it to prevent pipe corrosion and as a result, the water caused lead to leach from old pipes and into homes. You know, this is moving quickly from a municipal uh, catastrophe to clearly environmental racism. Um, my, my fear and concern is not necessarily now within the next three to five years, but what's going to happen long term when they start, um, you know, seeing manifest changes in these children right. uh, with learning and with uh, attitudes and it, it to me the slow movement of rectifying this problem is is really systemic and it's it's not going to be helped by uh, a vice president who doesn't even think we should talk about or label things as institutional or systemic racism well and i i think flint or the state of Michigan is setting itself up for a massive, massive lawsuit. And aside from that, again, the health of the children is in peril. Uh, this uh, story, Michelle Obama is back for the kids. Angela Helms uh, shares that after a much needed respite from the public eye, former first lady Michelle Obama will soon be back in our lives. And not a moment too late. <laughs> Uh, the, the Los Angeles Times reports that Mrs. Obama will appear as a guest judge on the fifth season of MasterChef Junior in late February. 
Mrs. Obama will join chefs Gordon Ramsay and Christina Tosi to judge children between the ages of 8 to 13 who are competing for a $100,000 prize. Given her advocacy for healthy eating during her time in the White House, Mrs. Obama will most likely have the kids prepare a healthy meal. Not only did she revive the White House vegetable garden, which, by the way, Melania Trump said she would keep, but she founded the Let's Move initiative in 2010, which promoted regular exercise and healthy food choices. In addition to Mrs. Obama, other notable guest judges will include Martha Stewart and the Muppets. Uh, We can't wait to see that, and it's so good to hear that First Lady Obama is coming back. May she possibly come back for maybe some limelight in politics yeah it's 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 good to hear that first lady trump is going to keep the garden that's right going from her penthouse in new york yeah (laughs) that's so true (laughs) stephen crockett of the root shares that if you are unfamiliar with charles blow let me speed you up (laughs) he he's never been here for the quote expletive deleted unquote He's educated, informed, and opinionated, and isn't willing to play nice during Donald Trump's dictatorship. During a late-night CNN panel, conservative Trump supporter Kaylee McKinney, or McEnany, thought she was going to throw shade at Mr. Blow, and she learned quickly that that is not what she would be doing ever. McEnany praised Don Lemon for having her on and trying to create an open dialogue, and then she touched Mr. Blow's arm while noting that some other publications have sinister motives. Don't do that, Blow told her. Don't touch me and say that's your sinister motivations. That's not going to happen tonight. She told Blow that she didn't realize that she couldn't touch him and that maybe she should move her (laughs) chair over. You can scoot until you, you fall off that ledge, Blow replied. What I'm telling you is don't touch me and why are you saying I'm sinister? So this was on CNN and, and uh, there, there was some, as I say, Charles Blowback uh, at CNN. We may have to interview Mr. Blow for a future show. Um, this is an, a timely article, William, uh, sort of uh, related to the conversation uh, you had with uh, Dr. David Raglan earlier in the show. Uh, there's a new mobile application called Cop Critic, and it may be, as some term, the solution to police violence on unarmed minorities. Now, now this is interesting. Uh, Victor Holman, creator of a new mobile app called Cop Critic, comments, Our brothers and sisters' freedom is at at a uh, great risk. Our president is contemplating instigating stop and frisk laws in Chicago and other major cities. Immigration laws are shaky, and our president is dividing our people and the police that protect us. Incidents with law enforcement are sure to rise. We cannot allow another Trayvon Martin, Philando Castile, Eric Garner, or LeVar Jones. We must protect ourselves with our greatest defense, the truth. Cop Critic, uh, and you can learn more at www.copcritic.com, is the first live streaming mobile application and website designed to protect citizens whose rights are in jeopardy to keep our community safer from unfair treatment and to hold abusive officers accountable for their, for their actions. But most importantly, it reduces the tensions of officers who feel threatened when approaching members of minority communities. When launched, CopCritic alerts the mobile user's emergency contacts and sends them a link to the live stream so that loved ones are aware of the situation and so transparency and accountability are maintained. I'm going to pause right there because I thought that uh, body cameras 
Uh, we're supposed to sort of achieve this now. I'm going back to the article. Members and site visitors can view the live streams, rate the officer's performance, and escalate the situation if they believe the officer or community member is in danger. Viewers hit thumbs up and thumbs down in the part of the videos where they believe officers perform above or below performance standards. Feedback is used to help police training and to weed out officers with a history of aggressive behavior. Holman, who is also the owner of Lifecycle Performance Professionals, is a performance management expert who has built over 50 products and systems to help businesses and individuals perform at high levels. And it goes on and on. Um, he, there's a quote from Holman that states, the real solution will come from the people that visit Cop Critic, rate police performance, and provide valuable feedback, which can then be translated into training and improved communications. Again, to learn more, www.copcritic.com. What do you think about that? I have, well, one question and two comments. Number one, will, will law enforcement accept the feedback from this app? Uh, will they accept the data and then act on it? And then number two, uh, to your comment about body cams. Number one, there's already been reports of officers turning the body cams off, and then not all policemen, uh, police enforcement agencies have them. And then there's the other sensitive issue of an officer allowing you to hold a cell phone while you're being stopped. Because again, you know, here we go, there's, always, there's already been mistaken um, assumptions that someone had something in their hand that I thought was something else. So you're pulled over at a traffic stop, you're hopefully not fumbling for your cell phone, but say you get your cell phone out, if the officer says put it down, you probably have to comply. At least you can still capture the video, I mean the audio though. But I think, I think we did read that if you hit a particular button, an alert is sent out to your right. loved ones right. and others, and if, if they don't see a live stream, then that would be a sign. And so I would imagine there's a GPS component to this. So they can get on the phone right away or they can, well, not head over there because that's the last thing you really want to do. I, I hope the kinks get worked out because this is an example of society trying to find a resolution where right. apparently law enforcement is not. And remember, if, if it's a traffic stop, you have some time to activate your recording and set your phone down uh, somewhere. Right. To record, which is what what I intend to do. Well, they have these uh, dashboard mounted holders that you yes. can put your phone in and just position it so that you're that is taking the picture. Yeah. It, it, and, you know, if, if you think about it, it I, we, I, I believe we're at that point um, because officers and, you know, in the spectrum, those officers who are suspect and have a history of violence are you know held account by some prosecutors taken to court but then uh prosecutors or someone tries to get it into a grand jury uh hearing or grand jury trial and then you get these sort of questionable outcomes right. what do you mean not guilty what do you mean uh, cleared of any wrongdoing so maybe this is the public's way and we have technology on these phones. You know, we have everybody's taking selfies. Everybody's kind of taking these quick videos. Even idiots who take videos of them doing crime. So this might be one more tool in the practical arsenal to try to safeguard oneself against uh, abuses um, from those who claim to be law enforcement officers. Is this a good example of cause and effect? Uh, I, ho I hope the outcomes are positive. And it'll be interesting to, to, to rate this to see how this all comes, uh, if it's a positive. I'm going to check it out. 
well, as we sort of segue out of the news, one thing we do want to mention that to keep up with local news and find out what's happening behind the scenes at WFHB, you're invited to like the WFHB Facebook page. Go to Facebook.com and search for WFHB, or you can always visit the WFHB News website at WFHB.org slash news. And that was a look at African-American headline news from around the world for this week. Tune in again next week for the latest, greatest news on and for the African-American community. We don't. We want to know what you think. We want to know what you think of current black issues. Send your comments to bring it on at WFHB.org. For Bring It On, I'm Clarence Boone. I'm William Hosea, and you are listening to Bring It On, Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM on your radio and live on the web at WFHB.org. Support for WFHB comes from Bloomington Clothing Company, offering one-of-a-kind style in women's clothing, home decorating, and more. Located at 2664 East 2nd Street in Bloomington. More information is available by calling 812-345-2689. Time.
don't wanna be bothered. Sometimes I just want a quiet life. Me and my baby, me and my lady. Sometimes I don't wanna get into no war. Sometimes I don't wanna be a soldier. Sometimes I just wanna be a man. just heard umi says by the most deaf yasim bay who was born dante terrell smith best known by his stage name most deaf is a hip-hop recording artist actor and activist from brooklyn new york best known for his music most deaf embarked on his hip-hop career in 1994 it's now time to bring you the events of interest in the black community for bring it on i'm william hosea and i'm clarence boone well, Black History Month is uh, kind of coming to a close, but yet there are some more uh, uh, beneficial upcoming events coming. Um, for tomorrow, Tuesday, February the 21st, there is the Black History Month Essay Contest Awards Reception, which will be at Fairview Elementary School, 500 West 7th Street, 6 p.m., and there is no cost for admission. Parents, teachers, siblings, friends, and community members are invited to Fairview Elementary as the winners of the 2017 Black History Month Essay Contest are honored. Awards will be presented in the elementary, middle, and high school levels. Join the community in supporting, in supporting these budding scholars, and refreshments will be served. For additional information, you can contact uh, BHMSA. B-H-M-E-S-S-A-Y at bloomington.in.gov. Also tomorrow at 10 p.m., uh, Maya Angelou, American Masters. Journey through the prolific life of the I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings author and activist who inspired generations with lyrical, modern African-American thought. Features new interviews with Oprah Winfrey, Common, the Clintons, and others. It's uh, featured on PBS, www.pbs.org forward slash WNET forward slash American Masters forward slash Maya dash Angelou dash film forward slash 7533. That's a lot. Just go to PBS and do a search. (laughs) Saturday, February the 25th, the 12th annual City of Bloomington Black History Month Gala at the Hilton Garden Inn. 245 North College Avenue here in Bloomington. Uh, 6 p.m. the doors will open and there will be a silent auction. 7 o'clock p.m. the gala begins. Tickets are $50 each and they are available at the Buskirk Chumley box office. And I advise you if you want to go to contact Buskirk Chumley quickly because those tickets are usually spoken for very quickly. 
Uh, Bus Kirk Chum Lake box office is at 114 East Kirkwood Avenue. And by phone, you can reach them at 812-323-3020. Again, 812-323-3020. And you can go online at www.bctboxoffice.com. www.bctboxoffice.com. And this is an elegant, elegant evening of dinner and dancing and marking the end of the month with uh, commemorations of Black History Month and continuing the city's ongoing commitment to diversity. The the evening includes live music by Ground Zero Indiana, a silent auction, and again, the presentation of the 2017 City of Bloomington Living Legend and Outstanding Black Male Leader for Tomorrow Award. So avail yourself of that information and see you there. Yeah, yours truly and the missus will be the MCs for the evening. Oh, you can't miss it now. You got your tickets already? Like I said, you can't miss it now. <laughs> okay, let's back up to February the 23rd at uh, www.changingthefaceofmedicine.org. Black Women in Medicine honors black female doctors around the country who work diligently in all facets of medicine by combining historical context with a look at the current generation coming up through the ranks. Black Women in Medicine chronicles stories of excellence and perseverance that engage encourage and motivate planting seeds of aspiration in the minds of future doctors once again that's www.changingthefaceofmedicine.org and another quick mention um monday february 27th now this is what it says black don't crack new marshall black culture center uh, will have a discussion about the uh, physiological health of the black community and the new marshall black culture center is at 275 North Jordan Avenue here in Bloomington, and that event is from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. If black you, don't crack, huh? Black don't crack. All right. Because we use lotion. Uh, if you have an event <laughs> or happening. I thought it was cocoa butter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's go back. If you have an event or happening, the African-American community should know about it. Please send the info directly to William Hosea, uh, or if you want additional information about a calendar item that you've heard tonight, contact us at bring it on at WFHB.org. <laughs> Our thanks to Dr. David Ragland for acquainting us with the Truth Telling Project. The Truth Telling Project implements and sustains grassroots community-centered truth-telling processes to share local voices to educate America and to support reconciliation for the purposes of eliminating structural violence and systemic racism against black people in these United States. To learn more, go to http colon forward slash forward slash the truth telling project dot org. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Coco Butter Boone with help from WFHB News Department Director Joe Crawford. Our news editor is Michael Nallen. Our board engineering team consists of Jim Thrasher and Floyd Hobson. Our original theme music was created by Jamil FM with additional background tracks by David Baker. Again, for WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone. I'm William Hosea. Be sure to tune in next Monday, February 27th at 6 p.m. for a special conversation with our three black elected officials of Monroe County. Judge Valerie Harden, Nicole Bolden, and Nicole Brown, city clerk and county clerk, respectively, on another edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. 
Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.